Hello, and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Steve, and I'm here with Bill. Good evening, Bill. Good evening, Steve. What we're going to do today, and over the course of many future episodes, is give you the experience of what it's like to be out in the field, in the woods, and on the trail. For every episode, we pick a natural history topic, research the science on that topic, head out to a natural area, and share with you everything we've learned. We can stop faking it now, Bill. There's not a lot of snow. (laughs) (laughs) We're trying to be authentic. Explain to them what we just did to trick them. (laughs) Well, it is late January, and uh, even though there's not a ton of snow right now, we've had a little bit of a thaw here. We found some hard, crusty snow on the side of the road that made for some good audio. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) because we need those footsteps to start every episode. That's right, that's right. (laughs) But we are here at the Beaver Meadow Audubon Center for one of our rare nighttime episodes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so this is a uh, 400-acre nature preserve located about 45 minutes east of Buffalo. And this is where we filmed our maple sugaring episode back in March. Oh yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. Now, I'll let you, uh, if you don't mind, tell people what we're going to be talking about tonight. Well, I thought it would be fun, or incredibly boring for most people, (laughs) to introduce this topic through a poem by Ted Kuzer. No, I don't think that's boring at all. (laughs) So, uh, try to guess which species I'm talking about here. And this is really only going to work if this episode auto-plays, so you don't know the title yet. Because <laughs> I'm sure the title will be uh, uh, yeah. related to Most it. Most yeah. people will know. <clears throat> Cue the dramatic music. <laughs> All night, each reedy whinny from a bird no bigger than a heart flies out of a tall black pine and in a breath is taken away by the stars. Yet, with small hope from the center of darkness... It calls out again and again. And believe it or not, I think there's a screech owl calling right now. (laughs) Did you hear it? (laughs) Please tell me the mic got there. Folks, I don't know if you're picking it up on the mic. I I can hear it in my headphones. Okay. Come on, let's head in that direction. Yeah, so that was Screech Owl by Ted Kuzer. (laughs) Um, And before we get started, I want to get this out of the way. Are owls smart? <laughs> they, I, I doubt they're intelligent in any meaningful way. <laughs> Let's say that. But I love what John Eastman has to say about them. And I quote, The wise old owl's reputation of intelligence, patience, and an all-seeing awareness contrasts with the actualities of its relative small brain, slowness to learn, and fiercely predatory instincts. <laughs> So, John Eastman, folks, if you're new to the podcast, we've mentioned him a lot. He has a whole series of great natural history books, but we'll reference him a lot, and I actually am going to talk about him later on, too. Oh, good. But this is fantastic. How I don't know if this has ever happened before, where our target species, we found it so quickly. So, folks, we're in a, a second-growth woods. We're kind of on a hillside looking down where the, the woods slope down to some kettle ponds. And the naturalist who works here, Tom Kerr, he, I talked to him this morning and he said, the kettle ponds might be a nice place to find screech owls if we're going to be calling. So this is where we started out and I hear one calling off in the woods. And it sounds like it's on the other side of the, the pond. But yeah. let's, let's head down. So I want to say that I've wanted to cover this topic ever since our flying squirrel episode. And the reason is because just like the flying squirrel, I've heard claims about the eastern screech owl being our most abundant owl. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like how, you know, the flying squirrels are most abundant. I right. thought they were saying mammal, but I guess squirrel is, is what the claim was. 
And I can't find any peer-reviewed literature on it, but I checked my field guides, and Golden says they're common, Sibley says they're uncommon but widespread, and Eastman says they're probably one of the most common owls in eastern North America. And I've heard similar claims on owl prowls that I've been on. Yeah. Um, so I've In heard... summary, I've made little to no progress in terms of answering that question. <laughs> you know what? I looked into it too, and I found that some claims, they get very specific, and they list it as the most common avian predator in wooded suburban and urban habitats. Yeah. <laughs> but again, I could not find any citations for any of that. Yeah. So, <laughs> Folks, I hope you're... You're hearing the, the winning call of the screech owl. Mm-hmm. Let's stop for a second, though, and see. Mm-hmm. So it almost sounds like a, a horse. Yeah. High-pitched, a descending whinny. It's kind of like a horse on helium. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Let's go this way. And a friend of ours, Chuck Rosenberg, can actually do a really, really oh, good yeah. screech owl. <laughs> if I remember right, the way he does it is, you know how... People can whistle really loud with four fingers in their mouth. Yeah. Um, he does that, but he kind of like wiggles his fingers around while he's doing it. And it perfectly mimics it. Perfectly, yeah. He has an uncanny ability, yes. He's legendary in the Western New York area for his <laughs> ability to call owls. Yeah, and I think it's much cooler than people that just do the, you know, just the, I, I can't do it, but they just like whistle oh. it. Oh, yeah, I can't do it yeah. either. All right, hang on. What's that? What the hell was that? I think we should turn back. I don't know what that was. Can you hear that? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually nervous. Come, come on, let's go a little what, closer. What would it be? I'm making lots of noise. Because it... Well, just be loud. So, folks, I, I don't know if the mic picked it up, but there was like some kind of growling, right? Yeah, but I don't want to be anywhere near a growling thing. Do you hear it anymore? I think we should go. Are you hearing it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm making me really nervous. Hang on, you, you pulled out the mic. Sorry. I know it sounds crazy, but that sounded like a bobcat. Really? I, it's possible they could be around here, right? Yeah, but... There have been sightings in western New York. And it's non-stop. Is it still going? Yeah, you, you can't hear it? I can't hear it. Here, the, the, is this one. The mic's not picking it up. Take your earbuds out. Man. It's just nonstop. It is. It, it does. It sounds like a bobcat. I think we should back out. <laughs> Come on. I, I, I'm just, I, know, I, I know you're a brave person. <laughs> Can we get a little closer? Can we just go down to the bridge right there? I don't want to freak you out. If How about this? If it comes any closer, we'll take off. We can't even see it, though. I've been around bobcats before. They're huge. When I was in Utah, we came pretty close to a bobcat. They're little. No, bobcat. they got short tails. Yeah. Yeah, but he's still going. I feel like it's getting... I think it's getting closer. Would it be really loud? What if it's hurt, though? I wouldn't want... I wouldn't want it to attack us because it's hurt or something. (laughs) Holy shit. (laughs) 
I don't know. It makes me nervous. <laughs> that that was a pretty scary sound. So you're not at all nervous about this, but I'm nervous. <laughs> I, I'm slightly nervous. I mean, no one's ever been attacked and killed by a bobcat as far as I know. Well, okay, because I'm just saying, I know what my cat can do to me, and I understand that my cat's fearless around me. I just wouldn't want anything. There's a screech owl again. Fine, we can get a tiny bit closer if you want. Right. But close. I'm still nervous. Hopefully this isn't Hopefully this isn't like the Blair Witch Project where, well, obviously it wasn't real, but if right. someone finds our mic and it's actually like a real version where we're dead... I but really think, hope the mic picked that up. Think of the publicity. This could have been our Halloween episode, man. Oh, yeah. Where we, like, fake getting attacked by something on mic. I'll be in front. Sorry. You're walking much faster than I am. Sorry. You, hey, hey, what? Hey, is that Rich? It's <laughs> Rich, son of a <laughs> b- <laughs> <laughs> I'm so freaked out. <laughs> oh, oh, that's so funny. Dude, I've never we heard punk anything you. like that in my life. <laughs> that's, oh, I can't tell you how... Uh, that's crazy. So what, what is the recording of? Is it a bobcat? It's a bobcat. Yeah. Wow. Dude, I've never heard that. <laughs> I was busting a gut here. I couldn't... Dude, that was awesome. <laughs> Did you fall? No, no, no. I, I there was no fall. He went running and he like the mic went flying. <laughs> Dude, what, let's see if you actually heard that. Would you have been scared? Yes. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so I wasn't crazy for being no. scared. <laughs> well, I called. I was practicing with the screech owls, and they're all calling over there. And like, yeah, I called like five in. Did One you? Flew and landed right there. Holy cow! So you weren't faking the screech owl, were you? <laughs> no, I was. Then they came, one flew over here and landed right there. Like, I was waiting when you guys... Wait, wait, so, wait so the whole time, we didn't even have a screech owl? No. No, oh. yes, you did. Oh, we did. There was one, two, one over there, there's one over here, there's one over there. Oh, my God. And one landed right here. <laughs> well, everyone, uh, Rich is with us. Uh, <laughs> you might entrance. <laughs> you might remember Rich from the... Uh, spruce grass. The spruce grass episode. Yeah. yeah. Way, way long time ago. <laughs> yeah, really long time. Did you actually record the uh, bobcat sound? I don't know it? if I oh. could vaguely hear it. Um, it was loud, though, when you got close. It's going to sound good, though, because the mic hit the ground. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to hear, like, I'm, I'm going. <laughs> oh, like, I know man. you're fearless. I, I was actually going to bring up, I'm like, dude, is this from all, like, the solo camping and backpacking you've done, that this type of stuff doesn't terrify you? No, no. <laughs> if I had heard that, I, I would have <laughs> my pants. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. There was no way I thought it was anything but <laughs> you know. Yeah. All right, well good, I'm glad it worked. Okay. <laughs> I heard you say, uh, I'm really kinda nervous about it. <laughs> <laughs> you were holding it pretty well together, Steve. So. Well I I still feel like I was the responsible. <laughs> no way. <laughs> At least I told you my true feelings, I guess. I thought you were going to hear my rubbing against the tree. I was laughing so hard. <laughs> okay, so folks. You, you were good at talking me into it, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. So uh, we hope you had much fun with that as we did. <laughs> but now we can get serious, right? I think they're in my shoes. So, yeah, they thought we were in real danger, I think. <laughs> and I want to give a, a very nice 
heartfelt thank you to Rich for being willing to do that. Absolutely, it's fun to do that. I appreciate you helping out. <laughs> All right. So we were talking about um, their distribution <laughs> when that all started. So Steve and I both, we were looking into how widespread they are mm -hmm. uh, because there's a lot of claims out there, right, mm -hmm. that they're one of the most abundant owls. But we can't really find anything to back that up literature-wise. Yeah. But if someone out there has a study, send it our way. All right, so Tom actually didn't say that the kettle ponds were a good place to find screech owls. I was going to say, I, I've been on owl prowls with Tom, and uh, we've never gone down to the kettle ponds. But, oh, but it was a good place to yeah. hide rich. So let's head up. There's, a, there's an area that Tom said was a good spot to look. So yeah. why don't we head up there? So I thought it would be good to start off by getting some general description and taxonomy out of the way. More or less lay down the groundwork for more interesting stuff later. So a lot of this is Owl 101, so many of you will probably have heard this before. But for those of you who haven't, here we go. Alright, so the Eastern Screech Owl and all other owls are in the order Strigiforms. And this order contains two families, 29 genera, and 199 species worldwide. In general, owls are large-headed, short-necked birds of prey, and they're mostly nocturnal and best seen at dusk. Though, I would say they're best seen in the middle of the day, <laughs> but uh, my, my best views on owls were uh, when they're being mobbed by crows and also uh, when they're surrounded by birders in cemeteries. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, owls have a flat, round, or heart-shaped facial disc that conceals their large external ear flaps, which I've seen up close when I was helping, actually, when I was helping Chuck band some short-eared owls, he actually held one open, and we got to look inside. Inside the ear? Oh, yeah, and it's creepy. <laughs> it's weird. It looks like I'm looking right through its head. It's so weird. Not through its head, but pretty deep into it. And uh, some owls have ear tufts, and some don't. And to the best of my understanding, the ear tufts don't help the owl hear any better. Right. Yeah. It just, as far as we can tell, it breaks up their shape. Yeah. Females are similar to males, except for they're larger, uh, like in most diurnal raptors. Yeah. And uh, most small and some large owls are cavity nesters. So all owls have structural modifications on their first primary feather on each wing for silent flight. The forward edge is actually serrated rather than smooth, which disrupts the airflow above the wing in flight. And uh, it actually eliminates the noise that normally occurs when air flows over a smooth surface. It kind of creates a vortex and that makes a bit of noise for one reason or another. But one thing you could do at home if you had access to, to feathers is I've done this a lot with groups is where you'll take turkey feathers and you flap those up and down you can definitely hear the sound of those feathers being flapped but when you do the same thing with owl feathers the sound is much much quieter significantly quieter interesting I've actually never done it yeah. I've never played around it's, with feathers like that it's easy to to see how it's such a useful adaptation for a nighttime predator Back to the ears. So owls actually have asymmetrical ears, with the opening of one ear being higher than the opening of the other. Yeah. So this allows the owls to tell the direction of prey based on when the actual sound wave reaches each ear. Right. Which is mind-blowing. Yeah, and I mean, a good way to think of it is, since our ears are basically placed at the same height on our head, we're good at telling direction, because it'll hit a sound will hit your right ear first if it's coming from the right, mm -hmm. but we're not good at telling height yeah. Uh, necessarily. So the analogy I often use is if there was a mouse scraping around behind some books on a bookcase, we could tell, oh, it's in that bookcase over to our right. 
but an owl could tell you exactly which book on which shelf it's hiding behind. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, as, as what Bill was alluding to, the precision is within 1.5 degrees of both the vertical and horizontal planes. So, yeah. that's pretty precise. Okay, I did find one study that I was possibly going to leave off, but I, I included it in my notes just because it was so cool. It is about barn owls, mm-hmm. but this was a study done way back in the 70s looking at owl hearing and the fact that barn owls, specifically as a species they seem to be able to hunt in complete darkness. So this researcher set up this elaborate room with speakers in the floor and set up a whole bunch of different tests. For example, one of them, they attached a piece of paper to the tail of a mouse. So it dragged behind the mouse and then they would release the mouse in complete darkness and using infrared cameras, they would see what the owl did. And the owl would go for the paper, not for the mouse. So it was going directly for the sound. It was hunting strictly by sound. That's so weird. And then they would do further tests using speakers in the floor, uh, using pre-recorded sounds of mice. And they could show that owls make mid-flight corrections. And they demonstrated this with two experiments. So one, they would create the sound of a mouse, and then they would turn the sound off after takeoff, uh, and the owl would miss the target more often. Okay? And then another study, they would move the sounds around during flight, and when they did that, the owl would change course mid-flight. So it was using the sound to determine where its prey was, not its sight. Wow. Yeah. Crazy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> now, I tried to look into whether screech owls, whether their hearing is that precise, yeah. but I was not able to find anything definitive. I had actually just read in general that that this is something that owls can do, kind of create an auditory map in their mind. And I assume that's pretty useful when it's so dark out and they can't see anything. <laughs> but actually, individuals will generally occupy the same areas each night uh, as long as there is prey to eat. So familiarity with the area is likely to help as well in oh, terms of building yeah. that map. Did you find anything about whether owls can see in color or not? I didn't look into it. All right, because I found... Many references, not necessarily in papers, but in species accounts on websites and in books, saying that owls see in black and white. But when I did look into it, I did find a few studies that seemed to indicate that some species of owls in certain studies did show an ability to differentiate between certain colors in daylight. Hmm. So... I don't think it's as cut and dry as some literature seems to make it. That, nope, owls just see in black and white and that's it. I I don't think it's that clear, uh, at least not in all species. So I know next to nothing about human anatomy and about rods and cones. Right. But isn't it true that humans, like the darker it gets, the less color that we're able to see? Right. I know that sounds obvious at first, but (laughs) in terms of our literal ability, like the the darker our surroundings get, the more black and white we see things. Right, and that just, evolutionarily speaking, that makes sense. So it would make sense that owls, they have way more rods in their eyes than cones. Cones are there to help us see in color, whereas rods help us see light yeah see light yeah so they definitely can see a lot better than we can at night and i do have to mention that i've had several people in the past ask me if owls have to come out at night as if they're some kind of like vampire and they can't come out in the sun (laughs) (laughs) owls can come out during the day 
Uh, sunlight does not injure them. They can see just fine during the day. <laughs> they actually sparkle in the sunlight. It's crazy. <laughs> and, you know, as you alluded to earlier, you, you can find owls sometimes during the day. If, if they're not successful hunting at night, they will stay up into the daylight hours to try to find food. Yeah, short-eared owls, that's one that you'll actually see yeah. during the day pretty and regularly. There are some diurnal species. Snowy owls, yeah. I think they hunt during the day. Yeah. And it's not that we don't know a ton about owls, it's just that our research focused on screech owls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so lastly, owls also regurgitate pellets, and uh, these are indigestible bits of prey items that they consume, and these will contain bones, feathers, fur, insect exoskeletons, uh, but it's not actually uh, unique to owls. It's actually been observed in raptors, galls, flycatchers, corvids, herons, sandpipers, kingfishers, and lastly, and oddly specifically, the Australian honey eater. Oh, really? Yeah. So, <laughs> all right, so I'm going to move on. <laughs> no, hang on, so, hang okay. on one second, I got to jump in because you yep. said uh, raptors. Aren't owls raptors? Oh, right. So, <laughs> I, you know what? You I, I should have caught, caught it earlier. Okay. Uh, th- because you had mentioned diurnal raptors or diurnal hunters. Okay. So, we have diurnal raptors like right. the hawks, the eagles, the kites, and then we also have nocturnal raptors. Right. Like the owls. Oh, so you're saying I should realize not everyone may know what diurnal means, right? Oh, shoot. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Diurnal is just daytime. Yeah, it's during the day. Nocturnal during the night. All right. So the vast majority of species are in the true or typical owl family, Strigidae. This family has 27 out of 29 of the genera and 185 out of 199 of the species. The remaining two genera and 15 species can be found in the barn owl family, Titonidae. Like Bill was just saying, the barn owl. It's in a different family, but it's in the same order. So they're related, but a barn owl is not as closely related to a great horned owl as a screech owl would be. Yeah, and while strigiforms and strigidae derives from the Latin word strix, meaning owl, titonidae derives from the Greek word tudo, which also means owl. So they're pretty fair, <laughs> in my opinion. That's pretty fair, you know. Two Don't give ways. all of it to one uh, family, you know. All right, so back to the strigidae. Within this family, we have the Megascopes genus, which contains 22 species restricted to the Americas. And lastly, the last level is the eastern screech owl, Megascopes osseo, which has five subspecies, but I'll bring those up later. I already brought up a little bit of etymology. Megascopes, I assume it means big eyes. I couldn't find yeah. it somewhere, but I assume. No, I did try to look too. But uh, osseo is Latin for a king of horned owls. And the eastern screech owl's previous genus was Otis, which is Greek for an eared owl. So we can already assume that the eastern screech owl has ear tufts. So, wait, the species epithet, osseo, mm-hmm. it means king of horned owls? Apparently, yeah, it's Latin. <laughs> it's a short word to say a lot of that. Yeah, right. <laughs> that sounds made up. Or there, or maybe there was a king named Osseo. I don't know. Oh, the, okay. The, yeah, right. the Greeks were weird, yeah. <laughs> okay, so what was the last thing you said before I interrupted you? I said that we can safely assume that the eastern screech owl has ear tufts. Well, we don't have to assume. Well, both of its names mean an eared owl and a king of horned owls. So, I mean, I think it's a safe assumption. And if you've never seen a a screech owl, they are one of our smaller owls. So they're only about 7 to 10 inches high. Smaller than a a great horn, but not as small as, uh, help me out, Rich, what's the tiny owl? Sawwet. Sawwet, yeah. So the sawwet owl. So it's not as small as that. So the eastern screech owl has two color morphs, uh, and we should say that these are permanent. So it's not as if it changes color 
by season or over the course of its life, uh, whatever color it's born with, that's the color it is for its entire life. Yeah, and, and I really want to say that I don't like the word morph. I don't even like the word phase. You've heard that too, the red <laughs> have, phase, the yeah. gray phase. It sounds temporary, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, they, they suggest that the birds can change between red and gray, or maybe even that they start off as a totally different color like brown, right. and then they can turn gray or turn red <laughs> under certain circumstances. But owls aren't like chameleons or octopuses, you know? <laughs> they're, uh, they're, they're either, like Bill was saying, they're one color or the other, they don't change. We've so. got to come up with a better term. Yeah. For what? For having, you know, uh, instead of morph. Dichromatism. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, th- but even that's not totally true because th- there's a few subspecies and they look a little different too. So there's the, uh, the rufous color morph, which is kind of a reddish orange. That's more common in the southern part of its range. Mm-hmm. And then there's the gray morph, more common, obviously, in the north. Uh, the two do regularly interbreed. So you can have a red hooking up with a gray. And having an intermediate phase as well. Yeah. Yeah. So no other North American owl has such distinctive plumage differences. The eastern screech owl is unique uh, in that way. Mm -hmm. So they are closely related to and similar to the western screech owl. That's Megascops kenicatii. It sounds like it's related to somebody's name. Sure. Uh, But the eastern screech owl has the descending trill whereas the western screech owl does not. Uh, the eastern screech owl also has a pale yellowish-green or a pale gray bill, and as we said in some, it has a rufous coloration, whereas the western is just gray. Yeah, I also want to say that the eastern screech owl is our only small owl with ear tufts. Ah, yeah. Yeah, so, so that's, a, that's an important uh, distinguishing character. Uh, yeah, so if you're seeing owl. a small owl, you know, 7 to 10 inches, it has ear tufts, Chances are pretty good if you're in the east that it's a screech owl, eastern screech owl. Yeah, so yeah. if it's small and has ear tufts, eastern screech owl. If it's bright red, no matter what, eastern screech Jeez, owl. Screech owl. <laughs> Still has to be small, though. Yeah. yeah. So the range is east of the Rocky Mountains. Uh, it's a permanent resident in both rural and urban habitats from south of the Canadian boreal forest all the way down to the Tropic of Cancer in Mexico. So these guys have a really, really broad range. Uh, and they occupy a variety of habitats, too. Lowland forests, up to mountainside woodlands, and uh, deciduous forests, evergreen forests. They seem to have adapted to both uh, older urban and suburban areas that contain large trees or groves, uh, such as parks, cemeteries. And actually, they, they often use bird boxes for nesting. Did you come across that? Oh, yeah, yeah. definitely. So I, I do want to mention about um, uh-huh. what you were just saying. I, I did find a study that looked into their habitat preferences. And they sent out uh, citizen scientists, volunteers, to call to screech owls. And this was in um, suburban to urban areas in New York and Connecticut in 2012. And then the volunteers would record their responses. And then they also had some uh, professionals doing it as well in different areas. And the models that they generated indicated, so get this, a negative association between occupancy of screech owls and percent of forest cover. Oh, okay, yeah. Okay. I, I read that they don't like dense forest cover. Yeah, yeah, so you would think it's an owl. It likes, you know, dense forest. Screech owls don't really seem to. Yeah. So they don't like dense, dense forest. And similarly, there was a positive association with uh, screech owl occupation and percent impervious cover. So um, I'm thinking that meant things like roads and parking lots. What do you think? Oh, impervious? Okay. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) But basically what they were saying is that um, they seem to prefer suburban habitats, 
Um, woods, as long as the woods aren't too dense, so yeah. uh, young forests, relatively open forests. I know you mentioned that they also are found in uh, coniferous forests. Yeah. But I actually read that they avoid uh, conifer groves uh, for nesting and roosting, and they also avoid dense or dry forest habitats. Oh, okay. But I also read that they are found in virtually all kinds of habitats below 1,500 meters of elevation. I did see that. So that they may two. avoid it in general, but maybe it's not that they're totally absent from it. Yeah, but they are a generalist uh, in the truest sense of the word. I mean, yeah. you can find them many, many places. And just one other thing I did want to say about that study. It was neat because they were looking at, you know, where can you find screech owls on the spectrum from rural habitat all the way to urban habitat. But they were also looking at can you use citizen scientists and will their results be similar to what trained professionals do? Oh. What do you think they found? I don't want to be biased by how much citizen science we do with bird banding and the Christmas bird count and all that. Yeah. But I would imagine that that's pretty significant. I, I bet citizens do better. Well, they didn't. Or si- roughly the same. Yeah, it was roughly the same. So they said uh, citizen science models had high accuracy and were comparable to what trained professionals could do. So that's good. Interesting, yeah. yeah. All right, so you mentioned uh, tree cavities. Mm-hmm. And did you know that at this time of year during the winter, they still are roosting in tree cavities, which can include nesting boxes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that the male and the female, because they do mate for life, they're monogamous. Mm-hmm. The male and female during the winter will often roost in separate cavities. Oh, I, d- I didn't know that. So they have separate beds. Yeah. During the winter time. <laughs> can uh, I, and, and, can I jump in? Sure. Yeah, All right. So in some case, I know that the owls are monogamous, but in some cases, a male will take up house with a second female. A side piece, <laughs> yeah, if you will. The dog he is. <laughs> and uh, the second female may evict the first female and then take care of both clutch of eggs and raise oh. them. Oh, okay. So. Oh. You know, I actually read the same thing. I have that most eastern screech owls form pair bonds uh, for life with individuals of the same age. Though, they may switch mates after unsuccessful mating attempts. Uh, and males have also been observed nesting simultaneously with more than one female. So Whoa. they're monogamous, except when they're, when they're polygamous. Not. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you mentioned before that the nest is usually found below about 1,500 meters. Mm-hmm. And well, even lower than that, between 15 and 50 feet, I think, on the ground. <laughs> So 1,500 meters in elevation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> I read also that they will use, besides a natural tree cavity and a nest box, they'll sometimes use just a wall crevice. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh-huh. I think I came across that too. Yeah. Yeah. And by late winter, that's when courtship activities are going to start to become more apparent. That's actually why I wanted to do this episode now in late January, because I w- we would like to do some calling of owls, but... If this was February into March, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing it. Yeah. Uh, I did come across a few references, like in John Eastman's uh, bird book, saying that if you are going to use calls, you shouldn't do it a lot, and you shouldn't do it during the breeding season. Yeah, so I also read that in late winter and early spring, both sexes begin to call. Uh, that signals that there's a cavity home for them to start shacking up in. And uh, courtship activities, I, you read about this as well. There's some bowing and blinking. Yep. Do you have anything more specific? Yeah, there's bringing food to the perched female. So the male will bring that over, and then the pair may reciprocally preen and then also duet together. And is preen just like cleaning feathers Cleaning each other, yeah. Yeah. And we should say that the pair does not excavate their own cavity. So they're going to be using a natural cavity or an old woodpecker nest or something like that. And uh, when they are using that cavity 
for nesting purposes, not for roosting, that is really the only territory that they defend. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you were talking about the nest, but screech owls, they don't build any type of nest. Right. Uh, really, they, uh, they have remnant lining material, um, also feather and fur debris from their food. Well, I also read that they don't, actually, they don't actually add material other than what you just said. They're, they're kills. They don't add any nesting material. They just inhabit. Yeah. They're just sloppy eaters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I did just, I just got a, a bird nest field guide. And I was flipping through it actually just two nights ago, and I was surprised because they had a lot of photographs of cavity nesters, and especially woodpeckers. It it doesn't seem like they build any type of nest. They just excavate the cavity, uh, if they're a woodpecker, and just lay the eggs right there on the bottom of the cavity. Interesting. So in terms of their crevice that they live in, their hole, um, I read, but I also saw a bunch of pictures of them uh, blocking the entire hole with their body. Well, sure. Yeah. Yeah, when they stand in front of the hole, the pattern of their feathers, we should be describing this because there are probably people out there who have never seen pictures. Sure. It's so bark like that when they're standing in front of that hole the hole disappears oh yeah so so we were saying before that the owl is gray or that the owl is red but they're also heavily and darkly streaked as well so it's not just that they're pure red or pure gray they actually have a lot of what kind of looks like bark crevicey type of design all over them (laughs) good bark texture (laughs) yeah and uh and if you want to see an example of what that might look like the thumbnail for our episode was made for us by always wandering art is actually exactly that I think it's a more of a reddish uh, screech owl blocking most of his hole that he's living in. Yeah. And I also want to say that um, oftentimes a pair may keep the same nest in the winter and the summer, and females reuse successful nest sites. And you were saying that males don't really defend territories, but they will defend territories where they actually maintain several nesting sites, oh. is one thing I read. And in one account, I read that, and I quote, the female is a close sitter. I was like, what does this mean? Well, that doesn't mean anything. I don't know what that means <laughs> Yeah, either. right. So I looked around online, and I found a write-up by uh, Major Charles Emil Bondier from the October 1889 issue of The Auk. <laughs> Major Bendier writes, The female is a close sitter. To induce her to leave her nest is a difficult matter, unless she has been frequently disturbed and understands what is meant when she hears the tree grappled in climbing it. She will then fly out. Otherwise, you have to take her off her eggs. In some instances, she will feign dead and lie on her back in your open palm with her eyes shut. (laughs) Immediately after you throw her off, however, she will right herself on the wing. Did he say throw her off? Yeah. (laughs) Wow. This is old-fashioned ornithology. And gaining a bow upon a neighboring tree will crouch forward, bending her ear tufts back, and look very spiteful and wicked. (laughs) Now, (laughs) I don't know. I just thought that was kind of fun. (laughs) Because who who picks them up? I kind of want to do it now, you know? (laughs) So you mentioned that they'll keep using nesting sites, but I just want to clarify that they do only nest one time a year. Yeah. I did not see that they raise multiple broods because... One a year, yeah. They spend so much time raising their young. Uh, nesting does occur between March and June, usually, mm-hmm. uh, especially depending on where you are in their territory. Uh, and they usually lay three to five eggs. They're white and round. And they incubate them for 30 days, so, you know, a long time. And then they feed the nestlings for nearly that long, for almost another month. Uh, and then they tend the fledglings for another eight to ten weeks. So they 
put a lot of parental energy into making sure their offspring make it. I don't think it would be possible for them to have more than one brood in a year. <laughs> yeah, and, and one thing that I read was that, and I think maybe we already mentioned it, but the male feeds the incubating female. Yeah. So uh, I also want to share another quote from Ben Deere's publication, which I found fascinating. And, and here, he's actually talking about stumbling across a male screech owl's cache. Did you know they cached? No, I didn't. So, uh, so this is right from his paper. In one cache were portions of bluebird, a mouse, and a frog. In another, a junco, a tree sparrow, and a minnow three and a half inches long. Claws and legs of crayfish were also present. <laughs> I didn't know they cached food. I hope that's true. I hope this guy wasn't, you know, All right, like hang a, on. a guy who told tall tales. <laughs> when was this written? Uh, 1889. <laughs> Thanks, Reg. Thanks for remembering all the little details. I'm listening intently. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I, I got to jump in because uh, we were, you're talking a little bit about what they're feeding on, right? So I came across... Oh, folks. Rich just stopped me. I don't know if you can hear it. Listen. They stopped, didn't they? Yes. <laughs> what did we have calling? We had coyotes. <laughs> so we could hear some coyotes yipping and barking. Maybe the mic picked it up. Uh, maybe not, but... Uh, where we are here, rural Wyoming County, uh, there are quite a few coyotes around, wouldn't you say? I would say that's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so back to what I was saying, though. Mm -hmm. So did you come across any references to screech owls wading in shallow water? Oh, I sure did. Okay. <laughs> in fact, I found a 2011 publication yes. talking about a 2006 observation. The Wilson Journal of Ornithology. Florida Everglades? Yes. Yeah, yes. why don't you talk about it? Yeah. So. Well, the reason I bring it up is because in the abstract to that, not to... I know exactly where you're going <laughs> with this because I was going to make the same point. <laughs> so Eastman this, beat him to it. Yeah, this guy by this over 10 years. abstract yeah. said, you know, I witnessed uh, a screech owl waiting to catch prey. And this has never been documented in this species before. Yeah. And I read that. I'm like, I just read about it in John Eastman. And that was from 1997. And yeah. then you just read this thing from the 1800s. <laughs> so, you know, not to knock researchers out there. We love the work that these guys are doing. But I thought that was a pretty bold statement to say. And no one has ever seen screech owls do this before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In that researcher's defense. defense, Eastman's book was published. Sure, it was published in 1997. But the book isn't like fact-checked cited or peer-reviewed so in all honesty <laughs> there is no official literature talking about well then he should have said that <laughs> <laughs> but i think the observation is worth sharing because it was pretty detailed and he said he observed a gray morphed eastern screech owl on three consecutive nights and the bird was walking slowly along the edge of the slough which is like a, a slowly moving freshwater stream in the the florida everglades and at times it would wade into the water up to 11 inches from shore to a depth of about one inch. And it was catching fish that were anywhere from uh, one inch long to about two inches long. Those were the, the measurements that I saw. So it's neat to think of a screech owl just kind of wading in, getting its ankles deep. And... Yeah, <laughs> and, and I really appreciate this observation because he even marks the time, and I think... Each time it was at about 3 in the morning, yeah. and the event only lasted for about 5 minutes or something, yeah. or, or less maybe. So this guy, for four nights a week, he was observing alligators for six hours, six consecutive hours overnight. And it was for, he like had a really long study time too. <laughs> like it was months and months. Yeah. So he was really dedicated. 
All right, so while we're on the topic, I'll talk about uh, some of the other things they feed on. Sure. So they are exclusively carnivorous, and they capture any pratum that they can seize and carry with their beaks or talons. Did you come across what the, the largest prey they can carry away is? I think I read a rat. Yeah, that's what I yeah. read too. So a rat is the largest thing they can carry. But during the warmer months, they do feed chiefly on large insects. Including moths, june beetles, katydids, cicadas, and crickets. And it actually captures these guys around lights very often. Did you come across that? I didn't, but that makes perfect sense. They're yeah. going to be out at night and during the summertime, that'd be a perfect feeding spot. Mm-hmm. Um, they will raid songbird nests, and their fall and winter diet includes many small birds. Yeah. But their their diet is varied. I even came across the statement that their diet is the most varied of any North American owl. Uh, but again, I didn't find a, a citation for that. Yeah, apparently they also consume earthworms on wet pavement, small vertebrates, uh, small mammals like mice and shrews. And you were mentioning the winter diet, but but just to be more specific, it consists of small birds such as juncos, sparrows, rock doves, morning doves. And actually, did you know that screech owls often decapitate their prey when they capture it? I did know that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Weird. Yeah. Now, since we're talking about prey, this the one study that I found wasn't about screech owls directly. It was actually about tufted titmice. I didn't know that black-capped chickadees, when they're giving their alarm call, their chickadee call, the amount of notes within that call and the number of times they give the call, that does share information about predators that they're seeing with other chickadees in the area. So the study that I looked at tried to find out if tufted titmice do that as well. And apparently, at least according to this study, their results suggested that titmice do that as well. So when they utter an alarm call, it does convey information about predator size and threat, which I thought was really cool. Wow, decoding chickadees' language. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so chickadees and tufted titmice both. And it, it did say the study found that tufted titmice become more agitated and it takes them longer to return to feeding when a screech owl is around as opposed to when a red-tailed hawk is around. Because a screech owl poses more of a direct threat, it feeds on titmice more often than a larger raptor like a, a red-tailed hawk would do. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, we talked about songbirds, but they also consume European starlings. And the funny thing about that is that regularly, the starlings will often take over the nesting cavity to raise their own young from a screech owl. Yeah, you know, I, I read that too. Um, I, I read that in terms of their main competitors for cavity sites, I read that woodpeckers, which, I mean, let's be honest, the woodpeckers, that's their hole. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, um, so, so woodpeckers, as well as European starlings and squirrels, are probably their main competitors for the nesting sites. Since we're still on nesting cavities, can we talk about the Texas blind snakes? Yeah, let's do it. So John Eastman, in, in his book that we keep mentioning about birds of forest, yard, and thicket, he talked about an association, actually a commensalism, so that's an ecological relationship where two species benefit each other mm-hmm. through their interaction. So this occurs in south-central and southwestern U.S., where eastern screech owls capture Texas blind snakes. So I'm going to try to say their scientific name. Oh, yeah. Leptotyphlops dulcis. Yeah, that's a <laughs> what goofy you scientific name. <laughs> so these are small, small snakes, often mistaken for earthworms. They look a lot like earthworms. I couldn't find if they were actually blind. Did you find any information on that? No, I did hear they're, they're uh, worm-like, though, since yes. worms are blind. So I don't know. They, I bet they're blind. <laughs> uh, I bet it's a good common name. 
Yeah, so they do have little black dots where their eyes would be, but I did find uh, an article that seems to say that those actually weren't functional. So what do you call oh, it? Oh, ocelli? No, but there's a term for it. Vestigial. Oh, vestigial. Yeah, okay. they're like... So the article seemed to say that they're vestigial eyes, which doesn't really sound right. But anyway, Eastman went on to describe this relationship, and I was able to locate the study, which was, was fairly old. Uh, I think it was from like the 80s. Yeah, so I actually tried to get my hands on the same study, the 1987 Gelbach and Baldridge paper. Yeah. I couldn't find it. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. So what it showed is that these small snakes, the owls do catch them, and typically screech owls, as soon as they catch their prey, they kill it preventing it from escaping but these they carry them to the nest live and then the snakes often escape before getting eaten and then they live in the nest cavity and they they do pretty well there they thrive there they feed on nest debris and probably on larval insect uh, parasites ants flies and other insects i read yeah. yeah and the crazy part is that owlets the baby screech owls that live in the nests with texas blind snakes do better so they survive in greater numbers, and they seem to grow faster than those screech owls that are raised in nests without the blind snakes. So like I said earlier, I couldn't get my hands on the 1987 Gelbach and Baldridge paper, but I did find a website citing a 1995 Gelbach paper, but I still wasn't able to get that paper either. <laughs> but I can tell you the claims that this website was saying and citing the paper is making. They mentioned that acrobat ants may also inhibit the nest cavity of these owls and will repel intruders by spraying irritating secretions and biting. The ants will? The ants will bite and spray secretions <laughs> to protect the nest. Oh. So I really want to read this paper now. <laughs> and uh, and I, want to, I want to be able to confirm that these claims uh, you know, are true because they sound incredibly that interesting. That was supposed to be in the 1987 paper? 1995 paper. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So I think now would be a good time to, to try and call for owls. We've been talking a little bit about the different sounds they make. Uh, hopefully, early in the episode, you heard the sounds that Rich's iPhone was making off in the distance. But typically, uh, the eastern screech owl has two sounds you're going to hear the most. There's a trill. That's just this monotone. Almost sounds computerized. How would you guys describe it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then there's a descending whinny, which, which we already did talk about. Eastman so, also notes that, quote-unquote, the screech is seldom heard. Yes. Was he being sarcastic at that point? No, or is there actually I, a screech call? I did find reference, references okay, to because it. because so. sometimes he's sarcastic, and I can never tell. You know, because that, that actually would have been a, a pretty funny joke. You know? no, no, so I did find that uh, they have a repertoire of sounds, and it does include barks, hoots, squeaks and screeches and that's where the common name comes from i also want to say that the word owl actually comes from the old english ewell ule which is in reference to the owl's call or howl so the old english common name for owl as well as screech owl they both kind of reference the sound that they make which i would probably say for a bird that hangs out in the night that's probably the best thing to name it after you know but they don't howl Right, but it's that. <laughs> it's a sad, howly type of descending whinny. Yeah. All right. So, and I would say a lot of people, if you're not familiar with the screech owl, if you were out somewhere listening to that sound, you wouldn't think of an owl. I mean, would you agree? No, I wouldn't think of an owl. Yeah, no, I, I don't, don't think so. Yeah. I still remember the first time being introduced to the sound and being surprised that, oh, that's an owl? Yeah, it's not a hoot owl. That's no. the thing. Yeah. yeah. 
All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to play a call, and uh, we'll see what we can get. So that's the Winnie. Horse on helium. <laughs> Screech owl is also known as the wickering owl or the spirit owl. Ah. Some common names. There's no such thing as spirits. <laughs> the ghost owl. <laughs> So one's calling. Yeah. We can hear a trill. There's actually two. Mm -hmm. Three. Now three. That was Rich's call. Trying to bring him in a little bit here. So one just responded with a whinny. We're hearing some trills now and then. There it is. Sometimes they sound like they're far away, but they're surprisingly close. Right there. Oh! Oh, there he is. Yeah, just he's in the middle of that branch. You see him, Bill? Yeah, I do. What do you think? It looks kind of gray, looks kind of palish. Yeah. So there's an owl probably... 40 feet away from us. Yeah. Maybe about 15, 20 feet off the ground. He's perched right next to the tree trunk. Oh, did he fly away? Oh, we when we took the light off of him, he, he flew away. He or she flew away. That was cool. That was very cool. <laughs> I think this is one of the few episodes where... We went out to find a target species, and we actually found the target species. Yeah. <laughs> this and the red-backed salamander episode. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? What about the uh, sumac episode? <laughs> a, a target fauna species. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that was awesome. Yeah, that was so good. Thanks, Rich. Ooh, I think we should walk a little bit. My feet are getting cold. Yeah, I'm cold too. All right, so this is a good time, I think. So if you just got to listen to those beautiful sounds. Uh, there was a study that I came across from 2012 in bioacoustics, oh. which actually looked at a study that wondered, could you identify owls? Power off. <laughs> Sorry. <It's okay. laughs> By their specific call. And I'm talking about individual owls. Oh. So could you, if you're trying to sample a population, could you distinguish one particular screech owl from another. So they s created this list of seven different variables that they would look at in terms of different owls' voices. And they looked at uh, the bounce call, which was the, the trill, mm -hmm. that monotone trill. And they took calls from 10 owls, some were free-ranging and some were captive owls. And with the model that they set up, they were able to correctly identify individual owls 98% of the time. That's crazy. <laughs> and they did, a, did it with a second set of owls 
wasn't quite as good, but it was still 84% of the time. That's still really good. Even if the first, maybe even if there was never a 98%, there was only the 85, yeah. I'd be really impressed. And then they took it one step further, which I loved, and they said, well, maybe their voices change over time. So over a two-year stretch, um, they recorded the different owls. And still, regardless of what time period they took the recording from, they could identify the individual owls 89% of the time. Wow, that's yeah. crazy. So you could get to know no, you can't. <laughs> your individual owls by their voice. I can't. Let's say that at least. Yeah. Let's, let's walk because I'm yeah, getting cold. Yeah. Do you want to? I know that someone's actually like living out there, right? So well, We don't want to scare the resident naturalist here, so maybe we shouldn't be walking yeah. <laughs> too close to his house. All right. So I want to try something a little bit different in terms of talking about the color morphs of the eastern screech owl. I want to tell a, a historically accurate story of the early days of understanding screech owl dichromatism. Okay. So this story gives a good idea of how far ornithology has come in the last 250 years. <laughs> and uh, particularly that early on, it was mostly based on naturalist observations. And now we really work mostly with, you know, genetics and, and, and more complicated techniques to determine what a species is. Mm. So I'm going to be mentioning the names of a few naturalists and ornithologists, but don't worry about remembering them all. Uh, if you're a birder or a plant person, you're probably going to recognize a few of these, at least in name only. Uh, and I usually try to ignore the human side of the story, but I'm making a rare exception <laughs> for better or for worse. <laughs> so I also want to mention that they're all men. Uh, because women were discriminated against in the olden days, uh, unfortunately, uh, no one had not just the olden days. <laughs> yeah, well, fortunately, uh, no one has any uh, conscious or subconscious biases against women anymore. So, uh, oh yeah, so that problem's fixed. Uh, <laughs> all right, so on to the history lesson. The red morph was first described by Linnaeus in 1766. Oh. Yep, he called it the red owl, Strix osseo. In 1788, Mellon described the first gray morph as the mottled owl, Strix navia. Uh, in 1812, Alexander Wilson merged the two species under the same name as well as keeping them as separate species. I believe he's referring to subspecies here. Uh, it wasn't totally clear about that, but uh, I couldn't get my hand on Wilson's fifth volume of American Ornithology, so I can't really say for sure. So I believe Wilson kind of had it right, but we still needed more evidence before we were sure. That they were the same species. Yeah. yeah. In 1828, Prince Charles Lucien Jules Lament Bonaparte <laughs> officially united the two species into one, but he thought that the red morph was the young bird and the gray morph was the old bird. Uh. <laughs> you know, like humans, we gray a little bit as we grow older. <laughs> and, uh... He ended up in pretty good company, though. In 1832, John James Audubon shared the same view, and a few years later, Thomas Nuttall supported the same view as well. Now, like I said earlier, if you don't recognize these people I'm talking about, you may recognize the organizations and species named after them. Alexander Wilson is known as the father of American ornithology and has several bird species named after him, including the Wilson's Plover, Wilson's Warbler, and Wilson's Snipe. The National and Local Audubon Societies are named for James John's Auto John James Audubon, and you might also have some field guides that share his name as well. 
and a couple bird species, Audubon's shearwater and Audubon's oriole. Prince Charles Lucian Jules Laurent Bonaparte is known as the father of systematic ornithology in America, and Bonaparte's gall is named after him. A pretty okay. beautiful gall, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah. And finally, Thomas Nuttall has a ton of plants and animals oh, named after yeah. him. I did a search for Nuttall on the Catalog of Life and got 589 results, <laughs> the vast majority being specific epithets of outdated species names like Euphorbia natalii, but also including some plant, animal, and algae genera, as well as one family of ticks that we covered in episode 19, <laughs> the Nuttalilidae. That's named for Nuttall as well. Yeah. yeah. So at first glance, Nuttall seems like a really impressive guy. So now I definitely want to find a biography about him or something because yeah. <laughs> uh, he sounds really interesting. Um, and if you want to check that list out um, from Catalog of Life, we can leave a link in the description. It's actually pretty interesting. All right, so Bonaparte, Audubon, and Nuttall thought the young were red and turned gray when they became old. But in 1837, a guy by the name of Dr. S. Cabot, or Cabot, claimed that he shot and killed a red adult screech owl while it was feeding its gray young. So he reversed the order, <laughs> that oh, okay. the gray were young and the red was old. <laughs> um, that same year, 1837, Dr. Ezra Michener, another guy that I'm not familiar with, observed red offspring in the nest of red adults and gray offspring in the nest of gray adults, concluding that the colors either variable or they're distinct from each other, where red only give birth to red and gray only give birth to gray. Um, now, I'll fast forward a few more accounts. In, in 1853, um, Hoy splits them into two species, while Casson lumped them together like Bonaparte, with gray morph being the adult. In 1868, Wood observes the same as Merchender, uh, that the gray adults raised gray young and that the red adults raised red young. Wood considers them separate species. And on and on, and the confusion went on for years and years. Um, but by 1981, three phases were known. The gray, the red, and the less common intermediate. The phases vary in relative number according to geography and not based on age, sex, or season, as we've said before. So I'm not sure if we currently understand the selection forces at work that select for dichromatism, but I didn't come across a paper that clearly explained it for me. But today, we do recognize five subspecies of eastern screech owl. We have the southern screech owl, the Florida screech owl, Hasbrouck's screech owl, Rocky Mountain screech owl, and the Texas screech owl, and they all look a little bit different. For example, screech owls are nearly always gray at the western end of their range, so that would probably be the Rocky Mountain screech owl. They're larger and paler in the Great Plains, and they're smaller and darker along the Mexican border, so that would be the Texas screech owl. And again, I haven't heard any conclusive explanation as to why there's different colors, but Eastman does note that the gray may be better adapted for withstanding extreme cold than the red, but I'm not really putting any stock in that opinion until I see something more rigorous backing it up. I did see that mentioned several times. Yeah. And um, it, I did come across uh, an ecological rule. Did you ever hear of Glogger's rule? No, I don't think so. So this is actually an eco-geographical rule. And it states that within a species of endotherms, so we're talking warm-blooded animals, uh, more heavily pigmented forms tend to be found in more human environments. 
So, for example, near the equator, of course. So the further south you go, the more pigmentation you're going to have. So that was named after uh, a zoologist who first remarked upon this phenomenon in 1833 in a review he did of climate and avian plumage color. And he found that birds in more humid habitats tended to be darker than their relatives from more arid regions. And his rule, the reason it became a rule, is because over 90% of 52 American bird species studies conform to this rule. Oh. Yeah. So this rule came up in a study I was looking at from 2011 um, from the Biological Journal of the Linnaean Society. And they were looking at how climate change was going to impact certain species and ways we can study certain species to try to determine uh, what risk they're at of extinction. So they looked at reddish color in species. And they found that um, species with uh, more red in their coloration tended to be better adapted to warmer climates. Mm. So they suggested that this may indicate that the gray morph will suffer greater under climate change models than the red morph will. Because okay. it's better okay. adapted to warmer climates. Yeah. Well, so we think. I shouldn't say right, definitely. Right. Yeah. So you're saying there's potentially some gene linkage. So there's some traits that just happen to be linked with red color. So that's why red is selected for, even though red is somewhat arbitrary. It's just right. linked with some other traits. Yep. Okay, interesting. Yep. Hey, you'll be a good shape, Steve. Because <laughs> of my beautifully red beard. Yeah. <laughs> Brown hair, red beard. Yeah. So, hey, you guys get a tiny peek at what I look like. All right. So do you want to talk about predators next? Yeah, go for it. Sure. So, as we said before, the eastern screech owl is a bit cryptic. It blends in with bark pretty well. Oh, yeah. But it's probably hiding from something, you know? It's still I mean, small. One... You know, it doesn't want to be disturbed, even if something's not going to eat it, you know. But um, so the adults are actually taken by larger owls, like the great horned owl. <laughs> Rich is playing a call of one right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they're also taken by hawks. And actually, and I found this super surprising, they're taken by other eastern screech owls. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Wow, I guess people cannibals. kill each other, yeah, so I don't know. <laughs> so, um, not to eat, usually. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you're not killing people to eat, Bill. Uh, eggs and nestlings are taken by black rattlesnakes, Virginia opossums, raccoons, and ringtails. Only weird people say opossum, though. <laughs> that, that's what I read in the literature. Someone used opossum. So, it's a silent O. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Sometimes. And you said they're taken by black rattlesnakes? Yeah, black rattlesnakes. But uh, not by other colors of rattlesnakes? The only other oh, rat snake I've seen was a yellow rat snake. So. Oh, you said black rat snakes. What did I say? Rat snake? You said black rattlesnakes. Oh, no. Oh, that's all right. We clarified it. Yeah. That's I'm, fine. I, I mumble a lot. So, um, <laughs> day roosting owls outside their cavities are often discovered and mobbed by American crows, blue jays, yeah. and smaller birds that actually end up driving them into flight and potentially exposing them to... Uh, Predators. Yeah. Diurnal yeah. hawks. Yeah. So, if you see lots of hawks, if you hear lots of hawks calling out during the day... And you can't go investigate because uh, we found a lot of owls that way. That's how I found my first two great horned owls. Yeah. 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 So, uh, and this is kind of the case with a lot of birds and a lot of animals, but um, it's estimated that only 30 to 50% of the young uh, from one year survive into the next. Yeah, high mortality. Yeah. And uh, I also read that the oldest owl that's been recorded was a little bit more than 14 years old. Uh, but the average bird is probably much younger. I read something like two or three years. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and uh, Bill, do you have anything on the status of them? 
I heard that while populations right now are probably higher than they were in pre-settlement days, mm -hmm. uh, they are declining mostly because of urbanization. Uh, people are removing dead trees from woodlots uh, because they need snags for their cavities. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I, I think... That does not contradict with anything that I found, because yeah. I know that I think Eastman mentioned that. Yeah. Um, the red list has it as a species of least concern, yeah. and they say that it has an increasing population trend. And if you're going from pre-settlement till now, even if there's a decline now, it would still be historically, trend. yeah, historically yeah. increasing trend. They're doing they're doing well. Yeah. yeah. In terms of respecting the screech owls, like we said, don't use screech owl recordings during the breeding season. Uh, it could invoke unnecessary disruption and territorial disturbances, yeah, which right. I didn't even think about the territorial bit. Yeah, and we do know, folks, before people start emailing us, maybe they already have, but uh, we know there is some debate about just using calls, period, mm -hmm. to call in birds, uh, that it is drawing them away from, you know, just trying to survive and they're investigating things that normally they wouldn't have to investigate. But uh, we fall on the side of we do it a little bit, we don't do it all the time, uh, and we're not going to do it during the breeding season. Yeah. So as I was saying earlier, screech owls are well adapted to living alongside people. And I also read that they may help control populations of potential pests, such as mice and some insects. Um, and, and again, there are no negative effects of eastern screech owls on humans. Right. No disease that we know of or anything like that. No, but if you do get close to, once they're, they're young. <laughs> once they get close to you, you know. <laughs> no, no, I was going to say, once the young have left the nest, so after incubation, after feeding, once they're at the point where they can leave the nest, they usually hang out on a branch together, that is the time that screech owls have been recorded attacking people. If you do come too close to the tree where their fledglings are, yeah. they will uh, defend that, that spot. So they're little, but they're, uh, they're feisty. All right. <laughs> so uh, I have this book called 100 Birds and How They Got Their Names by Diana Wells. And it's no replacement for Coates' Dictionary of American Bird Names. But the last paragraph in the owl chapter reads, Owls often coexist with humans, eating rodents, which thrive around people too. The Bible predicted that human civilization would fall, leaving a wasteland with ruined places overrun with nettles and brambles. It is comforting, at least for bird lovers, that this prophecy describes a court for owls remaining in the midst of desolation. <laughs> Cheers. Yeah, I know. Yeah, and I think that's a good place to end. So. But I just want to add at the very end here, if you are interested in what you can do for screech owls, you can't put up screech owl nesting boxes. You know, if you live in suburban habitat, um, or even, you know, depending on what type of urban habitat you may live in, uh, it's it's a animal you could provide a nesting site for. So we'll provide a link to uh, some nesting box plans on uh, the episode notes as well. All right. All right. All right, so first and foremost, we would like to thank our growing list of Patreon supporters. Yeah. Thank you, May Lynn and Monica. Our two new ones. Yeah, and as always, a special thank you to our top patrons, Rob, we named the dog Indy, Bethany, Matt, and especially Scott, Ken, Diane, Morgan, and Alyssa. Alyssa was our first Patreon supporter. And recently, she edited her pledge to join the ranks of our top patrons. So, Alyssa, thank you for sticking with <laughs> us noticed. for so long. And we can't thank you enough for yeah. everything you've done for us. 
So we also want to thank our new five-star reviewers. And this is a long list, maybe had, the longest. We yeah. had a lot over the past month. A lot of people left written reviews on iTunes. So thank you, at XXEsta, Jennifer Isherwood, NatureBoy150, and also thank you for your episode suggestions as well. Uh, Turkis, Soapstone Quilts, DJ Staple, and Garden Weasel. Yeah, so thank you guys so much. Keep those reviews coming, guys. It really helps us get the word out to more people. So since our last episode, Billy from the Urban Wildlife Podcast shared one of his flying squirrel experiences with us. And if you live in a city and want to share your love with nature with your mate or your offspring, this is one of the best ideas I've come across. So we'll leave a link to his essay in the episode description. I also want to mention that I just received my copy of the Catalog of Vascular Plants of New York State by David Weirer. It was released as the 27th volume of the Memoirs of the Tory Botanical Society, and I've had a chance to skim through the book, and it's pretty impressive. Uh, as a fan of state-specific flora, even though this isn't actually a plant key, uh, this is one of my favorite new additions to identifying and learning the plants of New York State. Nice. So it costs 35 and it's probably going to be worth every penny, so we'll also leave a link in the episode description if you want to order your own. Yeah. And lastly, I want to thank the first 40 miles for mentioning us on one of their recent episodes, episode 166, Armchair Backpacker. They talk about the top five ways to go armchair backpacking, and Josh really speaks pretty highly of us from about 13 minutes, 15 seconds to 14 minutes, 5 seconds. But don't skip ahead to listen to the whole episode. But if you just want to hear his kind words, uh, you know, it was really nice of him to say. So I've been subscribed to their podcast since the summer, and they're definitely worth checking out. So thank you to Heather and Josh for giving us a mention. Thank you. And as always, we'll leave a link to their podcast in the episode notes. Okay. And if you have any episode ideas you'd like to share with us or comments, please send an email to thefieldguides at gmail.com. You can check us out on Facebook, also on Twitter, at FieldGuidesPod, and we're on Instagram at FieldGuidesPodcast. And don't forget to email some questions for our Ask Us Anything bonus episode that we're doing because we got 25 written reviews a couple months ago. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> and if you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, you can do so on patreon.com forward slash the field guides. But if you're like us and you can't afford to financially support a podcast right now, there are other ways you can help out. You can share our episode with friends or rate us and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It really helps us get the word out to more people. And we can't understate the importance of sharing an episode. We're a small podcast. Yeah. We're about science and nature, and we only release episodes once a month. So we could really use your guys' help to help spread the word about the show. It makes a big difference. Yeah. And we need to say a big thank you to Rich for giving up his Sunday night to stay up past all of our bedtimes to come out here and uh, scare Steve into crapping his pants. <laughs> <laughs> it was a pleasure. It was fun. Thanks, guys. This is going to be one of my favorite memories, I think. <laughs> all right, guys. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month. Thanks, folks. See you next time. So what, what do you think smarter, a screech owl or a chicken? I don't know. What? Well, have you ever heard of Kentucky Fried Owl? <laughs> <laughs> that would be good.